Did you know that studies have shown affirmations can profoundly influence your psychological well-being, enhancing self-confidence and reducing anxiety? Here at Positive Birth Australia, we have crafted a 20-minute birth affirmations track filled with soulful, carefully curated affirmations to empower, inspire, and guide you to deeply remember the power you hold within. And to my fellow belly birth mothers, we have created a track specifically for you to honor that all birth is a sacred moment of profound significance. For only $5, you can download and immerse yourself in our affirmations track to transform your mindset in the lead up to birth and during labor, serving as a potent reminder of the inherent power and love you possess. Visit us at www.positivebirthaustralia.com or head to the show notes and follow the link provided to start your journey toward a more empowered birth experience. Welcome to Positive Birth Australia, a podcast created to empower and educate mothers along their own pregnancy journey. Each week, I'll be sharing insightful and inspiring birth stories and advice in the hopes to help you create your own positive birth experience. I'm your host, Sky Marie. Let's get into today's show. Welcome back everyone. Today we are taken through the highs and lows of Elle's fertility journey. After years of unsuccessful conception, Elle began heading down the fertility route to find some answers. As she was about to enter another round of testing, her fertility doctor suggested that she have her husband tested first. When his results came back, they would discover the heartbreaking news. The time that followed would be a test of resilience and strength as they endured the often lows that come with infertility. A time away to reset their hearts gave them the space and clarity they needed to decide on using a sperm donor. Being adopted, Elle's husband knew that love for your child is not based on how they come into your life. When finally experiencing their first successful embryo transfer, Elle takes us through the anxieties and challenges faced during her pregnancy and birth. During her next pregnancy, her 20-week scan picked up velamentous cord insertion. Advocating for herself, she requested another scan sooner than the recommended time frame, resulting in discovering that her cervix was shortening at a concerning rate. Taking the precautions needed to keep her from going into preterm labor, Elle takes us through the healing birth that followed. Today, Elle shares how being part of the infertility community gave her deeper insight when it mattered most, and why feeling respected and held in the birth space is just as important as your birth outcome. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Positive Birth Australia, Elle. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to share my story with you. Um, I took so much inspiration from your episodes Aww. for my second birth, so um, I'm excited to share my own story. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And now you're on the show inspiring other women with your journey. I mean, how special yes. is that? <laughs> yeah, I think um, like subconsciously I was hoping to be able to have a birth that I would be able to share on your on your um podcast. Mm. So yeah, it's uh it's 
I guess, a manifestation of that. So, yeah, yeah. I love that. Beautiful. So for anyone that doesn't know, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So I'm on the Gold Coast. I grew up here, um, but spent a lot of time overseas and moved back to the Gold Coast ooh, 18 months ago or so. Mm-hmm. So after my second baby. Um, and I have my husband, Brady, and my almost three-year-old, Asha, and my five-month-old, Sky. Oh, Sky! I love that name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny story with, with her name, actually. I was still, I'll, I'll get to it in the birth story, but I was still a little bit out of it when my husband goes, oh, what about Sky Page? I was like, yeah, sure. I was still just like totally blissed out. <laughs> so. Oh, so cool. Not often I hear a Sky. Excited to get into that. So you said you moved back to the Gold Coast. Was that from overseas or? No, we spent some time up in Gladstone, so okay. central Queensland, um, and after like having my baby in the peak of COVID and all like not being near family and stuff, I decided to move back down here. Yeah, fair enough. And were your babies planned conceptions? They were, but they it was quite a journey um, to get there. So we um, suffered from infertility and it took us, I think, four to five years to finally um, have a successful pregnancy, being Asha. Um, So, yeah, we started trying to conceive in 2016. I was just finishing studying to be naturopath. And I thought, yeah, right, let's let's try. Um, You always get told in high school that, you know, it's going to be easy. But, uh, yeah, it definitely wasn't. Had you been on the pill during that time? I had been on the pill uh, until I got married, which was in 2014. Okay. Um, and, yeah, stopped that. So I guess, I guess we hadn't really, hadn't really had any protection from pregnancy for two years before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess I was, I was temp charting and stuff to avoid pregnancy while I was studying. So that was sort of our birth control um, in, yeah, that way. So... Um, yeah, after a year or so of trying, I got some blood tests done and I, I, yeah, just assumed that it was going to be me that was the issue. So, um, yeah, everything came back normal. All, um, all my scans came back normal and my doctor at the time said, um, you know, we can do um, the test where they flush out your tubes and check if they're blocked. And she said, but before that, because it's quite invasive, um, let's get your husband checked. And so, yeah, he went up and did his thing and it was literally like a couple of days before Christmas um, we got the news and, like, went into this doc- a different doctor's um, surgery and she said, oh, um, I don't have good news and my heart just, like, sunk. Mm. And, yeah, my husband's results had come back as, like, quite low count, poor motility and poor morpho- morphology and sort of the rest of the the appointment uh, was a bit of a blur after that. Mm-hmm. And he did have uh, one of his hormones was out as well. So being the naturopath um, that I was, I was like, right, let's delve in research let's find a you know find a solution for for this and so I went in and um into naturopath mode and put him on all the supplements that I could find and sort of nothing was still um still not working and he ended up having an ultrasound um down there and they found what's called a varicocele vein so it's kind of like a varicose vein that you can imagine in your legs or something like that um but it's 
in the scrotum. Okay. And what does that cause? So with varicose veil, uh, sorry, varicose veins in the scrotum, they, I don't know what the actual cause is, but if you can imagine one that's in your leg, it's the same kind of concept and it's just bringing a lot more heat to the area and we all know that heat affects sperm. So um, it's, we don't know whether that was kind of causing the issues with the motility and morphology um, or whether the hormone marker that came up was the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, we still never really found um, what his his cause was. So, yeah, that was that was a pretty big blow and he ended up having surgery um, to try and repair that, but um, that also sort of didn't help at all. Um, and then I just went went on a quest to find a fertility specialist or IVF doctor because that was kind of our only um, option from there. And we visited one in Rockhampton and I kind of walked out of there and just went, this guy is not going anywhere near my bits, like just no bedside manner at all. (laughs) So um, living up in Gladstone at the time, it meant that we have to uh, travel down to Brisbane or the Gold Coast. And because my family's on the Gold Coast, Gold Coast was just the easier option and I found Dr. Ki Ong and, um, yeah, highly recommend him. He's very open to investigating, which is what I wanted, and trying or um, trying different things each round because um, that, like, there's so many specialists out there that will just do the same thing over and over and over and just say, oh, it's just bad luck, let's try again and just basically and, and not try anything different or investigate as to why. Yeah. Um, and all the recommendations recommendations that I'd seen from him um had said that yeah he he just felt very aligned so we had our first appointment and basically started IVF like a month or two later and from that cycle I got 14 eggs and we ended up with five embryos um which was awesome um and yeah the first fresh transfer that we had did result in a pregnancy but I unfortunately miscarried at five weeks I was down at a conference in northern New South Wales and that was just yeah heartbreaking and even before that I was like oh this just felt too easy and yeah that's only the start of it really (laughs) so um yeah we we tried again straight away the very next month but that embryo didn't take and we actually lost one in the thawing process as well so um, we were down to two embryos left and I was due to have a pap smear and so but that result actually came back that I had seen three so okay. yeah that's another spatter in the works and just delaying things even more and I had to have the let surgery for that which plays into the rest of my story as well later down the track mm. so just to confirm that's when your pap smear comes back with um irregular cells or something yeah so sin 3 is like the pre-cancerous cells that they yeah, okay. bought pap smear and you've got like sin 1 sin 2 sin 3 so I was just you know it's right before the cancerous cells so I had to get that taken care of fairly quickly okay and with the let's procedure they scrape off those cancerous cells and I had to wait a few months to have that checked that they got everything and it was all that the pap smears were coming back clear after that before I went into a pregnancy so we didn't try again until the February yeah okay is there a specific time that you have to wait with fertility or can you just try again straight away? At all. Like you can literally go the very next month as long as your hormones are lining up to where they should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and what they get to, it's called baseline. So day one of your period that all your hormones are at their lowest level basically. And that's what we did um, following the miscarriage. We transferred the very next month. And looking back in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have because I was, I was still quite stressed and grieving for that miscarriage. But I was just so desperate basically and so sick of waiting and um, patience is definitely one of the biggest lessons when it comes to infertility. So um, the because we had those embryos on ice, it's not as big of a process. It's just um, it's not. I don't like saying just, but it's taking hormones. Uh, it's it was a hormone um, IVF cycle. So you take estrogen and then you add in progesterone to mimic uh, what happens in the body. And then you transfer a frozen embryo. So it's not as in-depth as the full egg heart, like egg retrieval and that sort of thing. Yeah, okay. Once we transferred, um, we got down to our last two embryos, which was in like, would have been February, March 2019. And one of them took again, and I was pregnant again, but being the test addict that I am, I was testing every day from about day six after transfer and, at one point, the lines kind of stopped getting um, darker, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, I'm going to miscarry again." And uh, it actually turned out to be um, what's called a blighted ovum. So there's a gestational sac which is excreting the HCG pregnancy hormone, but there's no baby, or the baby had stopped growing very early on, okay. um, so they can't see it. That process just it it um yeah it draws out to weeks upon weeks like I think I was 10 weeks before I ended up having a DNC um and at the same time I got a got a laparoscopy surgery to check for endometriosis okay. um I Dr Ong I know in, in previous episodes um I was just listening to one earlier actually um He's very into checking for endo if you have the slightest symptom. And I used to get pain on the first day of my period, but it like it wasn't horrible and it wasn't what I had heard described by my patients that had endo. So I, he, even though he had suggested that I get the laparoscopy beforehand, I like before our first cycle, I kind of brushed it off and was just so keen to start that I, yeah, I didn't. But he did find endo only a little bit, um, so I don't know whether that was a contributing factor or not. But thankfully, I haven't had any pain since, and it's been almost four years now. So, um, yeah, so I had that lap done um, in the April, and then we kind of went off to Bali and and reset ourselves and did nothing but sit by the pool, and we just kind of needed that time um, to reset our hearts and and find out what we should do from there. And we actually made the decision to use a donor, um, a donor sperm from them. My husband, um, he's adopted, so he knows what it's like to be loved, just just as you know, as any parents would love their children. So open to the idea, and and we went through the process of of choosing a donor. Yeah, amazing. Uh, yeah, so. Um, that was a fairly quick process, actually. We kind of landed on a donor uh, quite quite quickly, one from America, um, and we did our next egg retrieval in June 2019, it would have been, and 
from that, I think I had 20, 24 eggs and we ended up with eight embryos. Oh, nice. uh, we transferred one fresh, like straight away, basically, mm-hmm. uh, before it got frozen. And that was my son, Asher. Oh, so, amazing. With choosing a sperm donor, could you take us through what that process looks like? Yes, yeah, I, I get asked this a lot. So we you first get a spreadsheet that has physical characteristics and um, sort of what their hobbies are and what their job is. Mm-hmm. And then from there you can choose three three. Um, donors to get their full profile which is about a 20 or 30 page document and it has all family history aunts uncles everything like that Uh, grandparents like their health history and then you get sent toddler photos um, so what they look like as a toddler and we narrowed it down to two profiles one that was my first option and one that was Brady's first option and um, basically we said, okay, when we get the photos, we had to request it after, whoever sort of looks closest to one of one of us, that's who we'll choose because each, each of our options were each other's second options as well, if that makes sense. So yeah. it actually turned out that the donor that we chose was blonde and blue-eyed like I am, whereas the other one had quite um, dark skin and didn't resemble really either of us. Okay. And in hindsight, my husband actually prefers that we chose one that looked like myself because we don't really get the comments of, oh, he looks like my husband, and then feeling that feeling of not or knowing, well, he he technically can't because he's donor or she she can't because she's donor. The fact that they're spitting image of me makes it a little bit easier because my husband doesn't get that comment um, and then knowing in the background that, that they're donor and that's not actually true. So Yeah, that makes sense. And so was the plan always to be open about your decision to use a donor? Yeah, we've always um, been open open with it and um, my husband even kind of jokes around about oh, it. Okay, awesome. We Because he's adopted as well, so I think it's a lot more easier for him to come to terms with, although obviously being adopted and, and not having that genetic connection with anyone that you know of it must be horrible for him yeah um we obviously both both grieve that in a way but we also have this belief that the souls of our children choose us from the other side and sometimes we need to come earth side um through a different route than this the typical way i guess you could say so Sometimes that comes in the form of stepchildren or adoption, um, fostering. Uh, but those, the sole contracts that we have is always that we were meant to be their parents and they were meant to be our children. It's just that the initial spark is, is a little bit different to traditional ways. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much. So let's go through your pregnancy. Were there any anxieties about um, potentially losing this? Because obviously you'd experienced that quite a few times. Absolutely. Yeah. And like there was one stage, I think at about seven or eight weeks where I had a little bit of spotting. Um, So I think by week 11, um, I was having scans quite regularly, but by week 11, I already and they, they don't advise this, but I got a Doppler and, and was looking for the heartbeat, and that actually really helped my anxiety once a week just to check that he was still 
still there just until I could feel him and get that reassurance regularly from feeling him move. So mm-hmm. from week 11 to 17 or 18, when I first felt him move, um, I was using the Doppler just to help the anxiety. Um, I never got any morning sickness, um, no fatigue, nothing. So besides my belly growing, I didn't, I, I didn't feel any different and I was um, a lot more uh, I was carrying a bit more weight after all the IVF and stuff and stress. So uh, even seeing my belly grow it took took a while as well. Yeah, so, of course. Yeah. And how was the rest of your pregnancy? So straightforward. I um, didn't have any issues uh, throughout the pregnancy. Um, I couldn't complete the um, the gestational diabetes test. I threw up both times. So they just went, oh, just do the HbA1c. That's fine. Um, so other than that test, um, yeah, it was pretty smooth sailing. I had a lot of back pain, uh, sciatic pain and, um, SPD and pelvis pain. So, uh, I was seeing a Cairo for majority of actually before I was in pregnant cause I sprained, sprained my pelvis in Bali on that trip to Bali. I got a Thai massage and she sprained my pelvis. So Oh my gosh! Uh, wow. The only issue with that pregnancy was, yeah, physically in my in my pelvis and my back, really. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Crazy. And what about your birth? What was your perception on birth at that stage? Did you guys um, have many discussions about how you wanted to bring your son into the world? Yeah, absolutely. Because my sister is a hypnobirthing practitioner, um, I. It was definitely something that I wanted to do, have the calm birth. Um, I actually was privileged enough to attend her home birth with Talia, her second. Beautiful. So I guess I kind of went into it a little bit cocky looking back on it. Like <laughs> I've seen this being done. I you know I was into meditation, um, so I knew how to meditate. So we did do the hypnobirthing course with um, Shari at, uh, I want to say I was like, I, th- I remember I was quite early on um, for her like what she kind of recommends. I think it was about 24 weeks and looking back that was probably a bit too early because by the time the birth came, um, I thought I had a lot of time to practice and it kind of just got put on the back burner uh, and I I didn't follow through with the practicing because I already knew how to meditate and blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, I was definitely cocky into that that birth and, um, yeah, in hindsight, I probably should have done my homework. <laughs> I'm surprised Shari wasn't more on your case about it. Oh, she was. She definitely <laughs> was. But I would always fall asleep whenever I would listen to the, um, the yeah. hypnobirth. And, yeah, so I don't know how effective they are. Like whether it's a subconscious thing. Yeah. So. And what model of care did you guys end up choosing? Um, I was in the um, midwifery group program and the midwife that I had was actually the one that Shari had for her home birth. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I I knew her and um, knew that she was on board with hypnobirthing and all that sort of thing. I was um, – so leading up to the birth, I started doing acupuncture uh, from 37 weeks, maybe a bit earlier. I might have, I might have fibbed and said I was um, – <laughs> later than I was because I was so keen to get him out because I was in so much pain um in my back so 
yeah, I started doing acupuncture from 37 weeks to help um, move things along. And um, I got to, so this was in March 2020, so right when COVID was really starting to come about in Australia. And I was due, I was due the 25th of March. And um, I was going to my weekly, I think it was at that point, um, midwife checkup at, up at the hospital. It was the first time Brady wasn't allowed to come with me. Um, and he had gone off to get a haircut separately in a separate car and everything. We lived about half an hour from the hospital. So she, I went in and she's like, oh, any you know, pre-labor um, uh, symptoms or anything like that? And I had nothing at all. I was convinced this baby was going to come late. Everyone was telling me first babies come late and um, at this stage, I was 39 plus five, and um, he, his movements had sort of slowed down a little bit. And she'd asked me about that, so they popped me on the ECG, and they were trying to get me to induce being an IVF baby. Um, but I really didn't want to, and and I'd done some research about why they want to induce with IVF babies, and it's more related to the causes of why you need to do IVF, whereas ours was male factor. Um, so I yeah, I was just putting that off until at least 40 weeks anyway. I didn't see a reason. The, the baby was happy and um, I was I was doing fine. And, um, yeah, so laying on the bed all of a sudden, like getting the um, him monitored, all of a sudden I start, started feeling period pain. And actually, no, sorry, I had woken up for two nights before that with this same pain and it was just a one-off and then I'd have literally nothing for the whole rest of the day until the following night okay. and yeah this this same period pain came back and I was like oh okay that's weird and of course he starts kicking all over the place um being monitored and and the doctor comes in and he's like oh I want to induce you on Monday it was Friday at this point and was pressuring and pressuring and I was like okay with a plan to cancel on the Sunday, basically. And I stood up off the bed and I felt like this little gush. And I was like, oh, i got to go to the toilet. And so I run into the toilet, um, come back out, and I'm talking to them more about this induction. And it happened again. And I was like, oh, I've got to go to the toilet again. And the midwife taps on the door. She's like, are you okay in there? And I was like, I think my water's breaking just a little bit. Oh, and she's wow. like, oh, are you wearing a pad? Because I can test it. And so I gave, it, gave the pad to her, but it wasn't enough to test. And so... We headed off into the birthing suite so that um, I could lay down and have them um, test whatever it was that was coming out. And you have to lay there for about 10 minutes waiting for it to pull so that they can get enough of a sample to test it. And they were just about to do it and the alarm went off in another birthing suite. And so they, um, they it was a training obstetrician and my midwife both run out. And as I'm laying there, I get another one of these period pains and I felt this huge big gush and my waters broke. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. And um, I was just, yeah, like what are the odds I'm already at hospital? Yeah. Um, wasn't my plan to be at hospital to labour. I was hoping to stay home for as long as possible. And so I'd set up all the fairy lights in my bedroom and all, I'd done all of that, all the affirmations around my bedroom and stuff and didn't end up using that at all. So, um. <laughs> Yeah, they came back and um, I was like, I'm pretty sure my water's just broke. Can I have a look? They're like, oh, yep, yep, there they are. So um, unfortunately there was a bit of meconium. Is that what it? No. Yeah, um, meconium. Yeah, meconium. 
warning. So she said, oh, because you had a bit of reduced movement and now this, you're going to have to be monitored um, the whole the whole labour, which, um, yeah, so that, that was a bit annoying because I really wanted to be able to move around and stay up. So, yeah, it's, um, I called my husband and he came straight in and by the time he got there, um, not long after he got there, I was, I was getting full on, um, surges pretty much straight away as soon as my waters broke and the, um, they needed to put like the belly monitor on me, but it was one where I was attached to the machine. Still, it wasn't like one of those mobile ones where you can move around. And this monitor kept um, falling off. Oh, and so, so annoying, aren't they? I I really feel like that in itself is a, a big reason why I had the birth that I did with Asha. Yeah. Because um, it basically meant that I was stuck on the bed. Mm-hmm. move because either Brady or my midwife was having to hold the monitor on my belly the whole time yeah but at one point I try I did try to get up and get on the yoga ball and she was trying to position the monitor and and picked up um that the heart rate was I think like 80 or 90 and it should be you know 120 to 160 for the baby and so the red button got pushed. She goes, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna push this button behind you and a lot of people are gonna come into the room and it was basically because she thought that his heart rate had dropped um quite low. So they threw me on the bed and threw me onto my side and all these people ran in and I was just um I knew in my heart and instinctively that he was okay. Um, or that it was going to be okay. I stayed very calm, um, but it was definitely I can see why people would would yeah yeah deal with that situation because it was very full on having that many people rush into the room. Yeah. Um, yeah. So even more of a reason for them to keep the monitor on me, and it actually turned out that she was picking up my, my heart rate, not oh. the baby's. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. And they did um, they did keep asking me to use the feed of scout, scout monitor. But I had it in my head. Um, as I said, this is this plays into the whole cockiness of going into labour. I had it in my head that I did not want a scaffold monitor. Um, and looking back now, I think if I had allowed them to do that, I may have been able to birth him a lot better um, because that would would have allowed me to move around. And the way that he was birthed was worse than having that little monitor placed on his head. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I learned a lot of lessons in that la- in that labour and delivery. Um, but yeah, I I all of a sudden started quite like moaning quite quite loudly, and this was probably only after about an hour and a half from my waters breaking. And she said, "Oh, I th- I think you're actually further along than what what we think you are, and can I check you?" And um, so she checked me, and I was actually already eight centimeters. And so yeah, I'd gone from literally zero or nothing, no symptoms, to my water breaking and being eight centimeters. Oh wow, that's incredible. Yeah. So I mean, I was probably dilated a, a bit before that going in, but I just didn't know, which will make sense in my next pregnancy um, story. Yeah. But yeah, I felt like I needed to push basically straight away, and um, she told me not to 
um, because obviously it can do harm if you push too early. And um, I think it was only maybe half an hour later I felt that feeling of pressure like in my butt um, that I needed to push sudden and um and she checked me again and sure enough I was 10 centimeters so again I jumped I jumped um quite quickly from eight to 10 centimeters Mm. and how were you feeling with things progressing so quickly I I was like I was in panic like I was in fear I it had just happened so quickly and like with the red button being pushed and being tied to the bed, not being able to sway or anything through the contractions. I wasn't breathing properly. Like everything had gone out the window, basically. They got me to start pushing um, and basically nothing happened. And I proceeded to push for the next four hours. About an hour and a half into me um, physically trying to push, I started getting the fetal ejection reflex where you just, um, it does it, it's like involuntary. Your body just pushes on its own. Um, So, yeah, and that still sort of did nothing. And um, the obstetrician on on that night um, came in and he basically, the right position um and yeah like I was dilated enough I was getting the contractions but the actually the contractions weren't long enough they were only lasting 10 or 15 seconds so it was like it wasn't long long enough to be effective Mm -hmm. and I think one of the causes of that was that I was just in such a fear mode that I was trying to stop them yeah okay yeah so um by about 8 30 at night so this was seven hours in um I oh six hours in I was like I was basically begging for a c-section by that point I was so tired four hours of pushing like they shouldn't have let me go that long basically so I was begging for a c-section and they said oh we'll take you down to surgery um and give you a spinal and try and do a vaginal delivery with forceps and if we can't then we'll do a c-section and yeah, so that's that's basically what happened. I got taken down to surgery and through that hospital you get wheeled. The, the birth suites are at the back of the maternity ward, so you get wheeled through the maternity ward where others are, like, you know, they're with their happy babies. So I was trying to stay quiet. And then you get taken down the public lift in the stretcher and then past the general ward. So the whole time I'm just trying to stay quiet and... um. Yeah, it was – It's that part of it is definitely a cool memory of that birth for me. Um, and then into the into the surgery and um, as soon as I put that spinal in, I was just like, oh, God, like it was such a relief. And the nurse had said to me, how are you feeling? And um, I don't usually swear, but I said, like, effing amazing. And she at me. She was like – we don't come in here to um, to get sworn at and how dare you and basically told me off. Um, oh, wow. I'm so sorry. Yeah, uh, it was um, – I was felt – I was made to feel tiny, like yeah. like I 
I wanted to crawl into a hole at that stage because that's not me. That's not how I usually am. And my midwife comes over and said, what, what's the issue? And she told her um, that I'd sworn at her and my midwife went, oh, yeah, she's a bit of a potty mouth, this one. And I was just like, oh, oh okay, gosh. even my midwife, you know. Yeah, so I think a lot of the trauma from this birth was um, I've since reflected back on, like, how I was made to feel, not necessarily mm. what happened, um, although um, a faucet delivery um, is horrible or was horrible for me. Um, it was more about how I was made to feel, like, not supported and made anxiety. And um, there were a few other bits and pieces that, happened along the way with other um, hospital staff that just yeah it yeah it definitely did not go the way I planned (laughs) so but um yeah he was delivered um by forceps and um yeah I so I had the episiotomy and the forceps um delivery and he was put onto my chest and um then given to my husband while I was stitched up and yeah, that that was his birth basically. Yeah, okay. And so how were you afterwards? Did you take some time to process what had happened or were you just too consumed by, you know, having your son with you finally? No, not at all. And, um, I mean, yes, I was definitely happy, um, but I didn't feel that connection with him straight away. And I think a lot of people don't talk about this because it can be a bit um, – the taboo I guess but mm. I, especially after going through infertility just the belief of actually having a baby now it didn't feel real and I remember looking over at him after I'd come out of the surgery and thinking I don't feel any connection and it made me feel really scared and it actually took probably a couple of weeks or even like a month or two to feel that connection with him because after um it taking so long to get there I just yeah it, I really struggled with it and yeah, so it was, um, it was a bit of a journey and, like, not obviously not very much support um, being the right when COVID happened and uh, my family not being able to visit from, Glad- um, from the Gold Coast. So I did try to see a psychologist, but she didn't have children and she hadn't been through a similar situation. I just didn't, didn't connect with her and then life sort of got busy and I and – I, shoved it under the rug I guess you could say so I just didn't even really deal with it until my next my next pregnancy yeah look I think that's actually quite normal for a lot of us that experience any form of trauma it's just easier to kind of um, bottle it away you know Mm -hmm. so I understand that completely thank you for sharing that and what was the gap between from that birth to then deciding to go back for baby number two yeah so we had um we had embryos in the freezer still from the same um from the same donor Mm -hmm. so we did our first transfer for that one I think actually was about 18 months so it was August 2021 and um in again in hindsight looking back I probably should have delayed it a bit because it was literally we bought a house and moved the weekend before transferring the embryo on the Monday so I was like moving boxes and lifting heavy things while I, this embryo was trying to implant mm-hmm. and um, I did actually get a positive pregnancy test from that but again it ended up being a blighted ovum so that stretched out for um, 10 weeks again. I waited for it to miscarry naturally and it just sort of didn't happen. So I ended up having 
um, another DNC um, for uh, that pregnancy as well. Okay. And then by that stage, it was getting close to Christmas. And so we just decided to wait until the new year um, to do another transfer. And, um, yeah, so come January 20, what are we now? January 2022, we transferred another frozen embryo and um, that one worked. And that's my baby Sky. Oh, so, beautiful. Yeah. And how was your pregnancy with her? This one was a little bit more eventful than Ash's um, and all went well up until the 20-week scan. Mm-hmm. And um, with Ash's, I had the 20-week scan, but I didn't have an internal ultrasound um, at that scan to check my cervix. Um, but I don't know, something was telling me just to ask for it. I think someone was looking after me that day and they did an internal scan to check the length of my cervix. And um, the ultrasound tech obviously can't tell you too much at the time, but she's like, oh, it's a little bit shorter than, you know, it's a bit borderline basically. And um, I didn't really think too much of it. And then I got an email from my obstetrician. I had decided to go private this time Mm -hmm. because the midwifery group program on the Gold Coast hadn't started back up yet after being shut down um, through the COVID saga. So I decided to go private because, yeah, I didn't want what to have what happened with Ash's birth to be the same at the the public hospital. So my obstetrician was Dr. Widmer at Grace Private, and she emailed me. I think it was late on a Friday night, and she said, "Oh, um, your scans come back that there's a few. I don't I don't want you to stress, but your scans come back that there's a few exposed fetal vessels, and of course I." what that meant and I went down that rabbit hole and for the whole weekend I was just a wreck basically um so what that means is um it it was looking like it could be something called vasa previa so not placenta previa but vasa previa okay and um I had velamentous cord insertion so where usually you would have the baby's umbilical cord come out from the centre of the placenta or sometimes the edge of the placenta straight into the baby and you've got the the blood vessels running through that cord. Her blood vessels came from the side of my placenta and ran through my membranes. So Mm -hmm. if you can think like a balloon, it ran weaved in, in the balloon, I guess you could say. My placenta was at the front but her cord actually attached from the membranes at the back. Um, so some of those exposed blood vessels were quite close to my cervix, um, which is what makes it vasa previa. If they're within, I think it's five centimetres of the cervix, you basically can't have a vaginal birth because of it. Okay. And is that because of the risk of blood loss? Yeah. So basically if I was to, if my membranes were to break early, um, and, right at because your membranes usually break close down by the cervix and if one of if my membranes broke and um one of the blood vessels vessels broke with it she would die basically because that's her life line blood vessels so usually they will like hospital hospitalize you from i think it's like 32 or 34 weeks 
um, to closely monitor you and so that you're at the hospital just in case your um, your waters break mm-hmm. and so they can basically get you into surgery straight away to, to take them out. So um, my obstetrician called me and talked me through it and she wanted me to ha- be rescanned a month later and um, to check whether these blood vessels had moved up at all with the growing belly and um, I just I couldn't sit there for a month thinking that this was a possibility especially with having my son and knowing you know planning for him and so I really pushed to have another scan uh, earlier and so I actually went I think it was the Monday Monday or the Tuesday and uh, I, I had it at Grace Private instead of just one of those ultrasound places that's um, not a part of the, the obstetrician office. So this was under the care of the medial, uh, maternal fetal medicine specialist, um, Dr. Olog, and she reviewed it and it actually turned out that these blood vessels, thankfully, were um, I think at that stage three or four centimetres away from the cervix um, and were likely to keep moving up. So that was that was really good news. Although I still had that velamentous cord insertion where the blood vessels run through the membranes, um, the vasa previous side of it was ruled out. However, my cervix had gone from like 3.5 centimetres down to 2.5 in the space of a week. Okay. Um, and so she popped me on progesterone to help lengthen that again and... Um, and I was rescanned five days later and it had gone down to 1.7 centimetres. And so basically what that would have meant is that I was having a, having a shortened cervix and I probably would have gone into preterm labour. At this stage I was only 21, 22 weeks. Mm-hmm. So that was um, really scary as well. And it's hard to know whether um, whether that LETS procedure with the precancerous cells had anything to do with that? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Most people that I know who have had a shortened cervix had some form of biopsy or surgery done. So, you know, I'm obviously not medically trained, but I don't think you really need to be to connect those dots, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I didn't have it in ASHA. There was one point where they were going to do the internal scan, but I wasn't expecting it on the day. So I kind of like wasn't prepped down there, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, as I just went, um, but looking back with how quickly I dilated with him and how fast everything happened it makes me wonder whether I had a short cervix then as well and I was just very lucky to get to 39 plus um with with his pregnancy with my first pregnancy yeah wow so definitely had some angels watching over you oh absolutely absolutely I was um admitted to the hospital that night and she put the stitch in the very next morning at like six o'clock in the morning I was I was first up so it was uh any shorter than that and it would have not been able to like you can't do it I think past I would say 22 or 24 weeks so uh, I was very lucky that I pushed for that second ultrasound uh, a, a week later rather than a month later as well because if I hadn't then it, I don't think we would be here so yeah wow so glad you followed your intuition and I think a lot of like infertility and even pregnancy and birth is a lot of advocating for yourself and just being educated. Uh, so, yeah, you learn lessons. You, I mean, but you don't know what you don't know as well. So yeah. being a part of the infertility community, it's talked a lot, talked about a lot more um, 
because we're a lot more open with our journeys and stuff. So I think that's kind of what um, initiated me to ask for that scan being done because I had had friends that had had gone through infertility and shortened or incompetent cervix. So that's probably prompted me to do it. Whereas those who don't go through infertility don't necessarily talk about this sort of thing very often. So you may not hear yeah. hear about it. Which is why it's so important to talk about all things that can happen, especially something that is so easy to prevent as well, just that extra measurement. Um, so what was the uh, what was the recommendation after you had the stitch put in? Did you have to do any significant bed rest? No, they, they said that I didn't need to do bed rest, just that I wasn't able to um, lift heavy things. So I... Um, was a bit of a struggle with my son but I had lots of support um, from my parents who live around the corner with daycare drop-offs and stuff like that and thankfully working for myself I could just work from from the couch mm-hmm. uh, I had a cleaner which was awesome <laughs> so that was my excuse to get a cleaner yeah um, awesome and yeah I just kind of took it easy I think about 26 weeks 28 weeks maybe I started walking, like going for my walk each morning again. I really needed to for my mental health. And that that was the time that I would always listen to your podcast. So um, that's when I started, yeah, really preparing a a lot more. I did a refresher course with Shari on the um, hypnobirthing course. And I think I got a lot more out of it this time because I could relate it back to what I did or didn't do in my previous labour. So it was really helpful doing that um, refresher course to learn more about the breathing and the different positions that you could be in. And I was also planning to have Shari at my birth too. So that, but I didn't want to rely on that because, you know, she runs her own business as well and she's got her own family. So Although I was hoping for her to be there, I knew that I needed to do the homework this time mm-hmm. and prepare myself for mindset, um, main, mainly my mindset really, that um, that I could have the per- positive birth that I wanted. Yeah. So. And so you said you had um, you had private care this time. So was the plan to go in and did you have an OB that was going to be present or? Yeah, but I wanted to have a natural birth. So. Like the reason why I chose the obstetrician that I did was because I I had heard that she would be open to having uh, a natural birth, mm-hmm. uh, birth. So it was one of my deciding factors. But it actually turned out that she was going on annual leave uh, a couple of days or two two or three weeks before my due date. So, um, but yeah, I just really made it sure that they knew what my preferences were, and I think I just went into this labour more with a preference and an order of preferences rather than a plan mm-hmm. um so like if this if this happens i want to go in this order um of trying these things in this order rather than going yes or no um like and completely ruling things out or completely saying yes to things and i think that's a really good mindset to have going into it as well as not having a plan but a preference list yeah i love that and um yeah so I was getting quite anxious about my membranes breaking on their own early. I'd heard second uh, labours could be even faster than the first. And so I didn't want my waters to break when I wasn't at the hospital um, because I was still just scared that one of these blood vessels uh, to Sky were going to to break with it. They were um, ensuring me that that's unlikely to happen, but I just – I was still just very anxious, uh, so I did request to be induced, 
and it was going to be while Dr. Widmer was on annual leave. So I actually got transferred my care over back over to Dr. Olog, who was the maternal fetal medicine specialist at Grace. And so I'd already um, dealt with her with the cervix issues. So uh, I felt comfortable with her. And um, it actually turned out to be a huge blessing. Um, again, someone was looking after me. So at 37 weeks, I had the stitch taken out um, just in their clinics there. And then at 38 weeks, I had a stretch and sweep. And I wasn't really like doing that to necessarily induce labour, but more to kind of help things along so that when I did get induced, um, it was my body was doing more of the work rather than having to get some toast and um, placed in to push it along. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I had that at 38 weeks and I did lose my mucus plug and had my bloody show the next day. Uh, so that was a Thursday and I wasn't being induced until the Monday. And it was the AFL grand final weekend, so my sister always has a big party for, um, for that because her husband's into AFL and she's like, don't have it this week weekend. And, yeah, so I was kind of like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. And, yeah, so... But we held out until the Sunday and I and I checked into the hospital that night to hopefully have a good sleep because my son still doesn't sleep through the night. So I just wanted to go into well-rested and um, got there and they popped the monitor and I was actually having um, contractions that I didn't feel. Uh, so probably same situation as Asha, I just didn't feel them. But I was still only, I think, two or three centimetres Um and so I was like, great, like it's open enough that I don't need to have the balloon or the tape put in um, and I can just go have a, a good rest overnight and have my waters broken in the morning. Little did I know that I would get three hours sleep that night and literally a couple of minutes past midnight was broke on their own. Oh, wow. So although I that date she she actually chose it herself she went no I'm coming this day as well so yeah it was it was a really good it was really nice feeling knowing that she was going to come that day anyway I don't know whether the stretch and sweep helped but yeah it was awesome (laughs) (laughs) just quickly did you have to have any more scans once you had your stitch put in or was that it I definitely had more scans um I think the last internal Again, I want to say was, oh gosh, I can't remember, 32, 34 weeks maybe, possibly earlier, I can't remember. Um, but with the help of the progesterone, my cervix sites are actually grown again back to three and a half centimetres. Oh, so awesome. that was really um, quite a big relief. So when they took the, um, the stitch out at 37 weeks, I think she said I wasn't dilated at all and I don't know how long, how long it was because she didn't do a scan that day, but um it was like yeah it was a a week or so before I actually started dilating to that two or three um when I got the um stretch and sweep yeah okay perfect so should we jump back to your birth your waters have just broken yeah so my waters broke and I ended up um calling my husband he had gone home to be with my son Ended up text messaging him actually and saying, oh, my water's broken. Did you want to come in? Because I was scared it was going to um, progress really quickly like it had with my son. So he came in and got there about 3 a.m. because I'd kind of ummed and ahmed for a couple of hours beforehand whether to call him. 
and he got in there and we had a little bit of a doze um, just before five o'clock but then my water's like kind of popped again um, and I was like right I'm just getting up and having a shower now so um, my sister arrived at about six o'clock and we headed off to the birth suites from there um, but I hadn't experienced any contractions like that I could actually feel not even the period pain um, type contractions yet so um I was so tired after having only three hours sleep that I um, I just wanted to have a bit of a rest. So my sister and husband went and had a bit of breakfast, came back at 8 o'clock and, and the midwife that was on um, said, oh, I'm just going to jump back a bit, sorry. Um, leading up to, like still, when I was still under the care of Dr. Widmer, she had said that because of the velamentous cord insertion that I wasn't going to be able to have a water birth. Okay. But once I transferred care to Dr. Olog, she actually said that I could. Okay. And we'd had a we had a meeting with her when I was 38 weeks, my husband and my sister came as well, and we kind of went through um, each of the scenarios and, and our preferences and stuff like that. And um, that meeting, I think, really helped um, with the, on the actual day because it was fresh in the doctor's mind of, sort of what our preferences were and um, we could also run through the risks of what possibly could happen um, with the uh, uh, with the BCI, Bellamentis cord insertion, um, afterwards. So um, when the midwife on the day said, um, oh, if you don't start contracting, the obstetrician's probably going to come in and recommend having some Sintosin to get things going, having that would have taken the water birth off the table again. Mm-hmm. So we decided to go for a walk and we walked um, about 100 metres down the road and I found a nice gutter to do some gutter walking and I've got some footage of me doing it. It's quite funny. Um, with my mm-hmm. and <laughs> Yeah, so did some gutter walking and that actually did start things off. Um, But the contractions were still only probably about 20 minutes apart, I think. And so we headed back. Um, We had to be back at the hospital about 9 o'clock. And um, once we got back to the birth suites, I um, did some movements on the ball to position my pelvis so that, like, the the top of the pelvis was open, um, basically. And I also popped in, um, I had some wireless or hands-free breast pumps. And those breast pumps, oh, my God, they got things going so quickly. Like almost immediately I went from 20 minutes to like every four minutes. Yeah, I was like shocked to the point where I had to take them out. I was like, this is too quick, too, like this is going too fast. (laughs) And so took them out and they went back for every between seven and 13 minutes I was actually looking at the Freya app before I got on the call with you and to see what my contractions were like and you could see where I had the breast pumps on and where I didn't Mm. and I ended up putting them on twice um about half an hour apart and um and then I had the TENS machine on but I really didn't like the TENS machine um at all for the contractions so yeah we just basically hour or two doing different positions I was just being monitored every now and then just with a Doppler instead of having it strapped to my belly and by about 10 o'clock or 10 30 I was so tired I was like I, I really felt like I couldn't go into birthing her 
with how weak I felt from being so tired. So I was like, I'm just going to lay down on my side. And I basically slept in between each contraction. I was just so much in the zone. When I would get a contraction, I would just focus on that four count in, eight count out. And my contractions were actually quite long this time. They were anywhere from 90 to 120 seconds long, so one and a half to two minutes long. Um, But I was able to still sleep in between and, like, I was just so zoned out. Um, So that really helped as well, just being able to conserve my energy, not not necessarily being, like, moving around and just laying on my side. Although that was a position I didn't want to be in in my labour, I knew that's what my body needed at the time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think I got to about 11.30 and I just had this instinct to ask them to turn the birth, um, the water on for the birth. Um, pool and and then about 20 minutes later the, the obstetrician came in to check in on me and all of a sudden I felt that pressure like you want to poo and push at the same time it wasn't the expulsive but it was that pressure and I was like oh I need to push and she goes hold on hold on and she goes do you mind if we we check you and so she did check me and I was eight centimeters and um, so really I'd only been on active labour at this stage for two hours, two and a half hours, I think. And um, she goes, yeah, you're only eight centimetres, but when you get a contraction, you are going to 10 centimetres. So let's pop you in the, in the tub. And I was, I undressed so quickly. I was like stripping off running across the room basically. <laughs> and um Getting in that pool was the best feeling. I remember thinking, oh, I'm coming back here after I have her because this feels so good. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I got into the the, um, the tub and same thing. My contractions were still seven, eight minutes apart all the way through. And they, they say three contractions in ten minutes and mine never got to that. I was having like one, maybe two um, in ten minutes. So I... Um, just rested on the side of the tub. Um, I did get gas, but I had it on the very lowest setting and I was more using it to help me breathe because when you suck in the gas, if you suck in hard enough, it makes a rattling noise. And so my, my, my aim for that was just to get that rattling noise and then I knew that I was taking a really big, deep breath. And but I think the, just the, the oxygen in my body was really helping, um, baby obviously and myself to stay calm and at one point we I remember the obstetrician came in and the door had made a quite a loud noise and it was really peaceful in there she's like oh sorry that the door's so loud and we all laughed because it was actually her squeaky shoes that had made the most noise they're walking in and (laughs) it was just a combination of like joking around and at one point I was crying because I wanted my little boy with me and mm. it was um, such a beautiful moment. We had his daycare photo update of the day come through um, and they showed me photos of him and literally the next surge that I got after seeing that photo was the expulsive reflex, um, mm. the expulsive uh, ejection reflex, the, the one that you can't control. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I think I just got that surge of oxytocin, like thinking about my son, and um, that helped it kind of move move along. And I remember having this thought of I can't do this. I don't. It wasn't that I can't do it. It was more I didn't want to do it because I remembered it 
how it was with Asha and how long I how long it lasted for with him. So everyone was like, no, no, you can do it. You're doing it. Like, you know, this is just transition. And I, when they told me that it was transition, I thought that's right. Everyone, you know, a lot of women who go through transition suddenly say, I can't do this. I don't want to do it. And like basically try and walk out the door and come back another day. So I, yeah, I knew that I was close. So I just, yeah, started focusing again on that breath. And I, I, I'm not entirely sure how many, times I had that um, ejection reflex happen but I want to say it wasn't more than five or six but they were still a fair few minutes apart mm-hmm. and one of the last ones I could feel her come down but then sort of come back up and from listening to your podcast I remember others saying that and and um, they described like holding um, clenching I guess you could say it's hard to describe holding the head there until the next contraction and so that that's where I found your podcast so amazing is that literally in the I was giving birth about to push her out and I remembered back to like hearing someone talk about this and it helped me in that moment hold her that she wouldn't go back up and um on the next one I birthed I I don't even know whether I birthed her I'm pretty sure I birthed her head and then not long after the rest of it and the midwife um yeah pushed her sort of between my legs up the front and I was able to pick her up out of the water and onto my chest and yeah I was born so so beautiful my sister videoed it and I was watching it the other day and I said in the moment I did it and everyone was like (laughs) you did it like I was just um I was just in shock shock basically that I had I had birthed her on my own without help and um and enjoyed it basically so yeah. I never thought that I would say so it was uh, an amazing uh, feeling obviously I had that um, 30 seconds of why isn't she breathing or not even that long it felt like 30 seconds but why isn't she crying why isn't she crying like is she breathing um, which yeah is is feels like forever but she was fine she started crying and um, yeah it was uh, such an amazing beautiful moment and yeah, it was it was awesome. So Yeah, wow, so amazing. Well done, Mama. And what about your fourth stage? Yeah, so we had discussed um in that meeting with Dr. Olog uh the week before that if some if I had um any significant blood loss that I would need to get out of the pool quite quickly. And not long after uh, she was birthed, I wanna say within a minute, um Dr. Olog sort of tapped me on the shoulder she said um Elle um you're gonna need to get out of the pool you've got a bit of blood loss we just sort of need to stop this now and so her saying that I I knew that what I needed to do and that she wouldn't have done it unless it was serious so um I got out of the pool and walked over with sky on my chest um to the bed we were able to do um delayed cord clamping for a couple of minutes and um but the I was having significant amount of blood loss and so yeah we we cut the cord and I tried to push the placenta out and they gave me um the injection first I think and then I already had a um, cannula in my arm just in case um they put that in when I first uh, went into the birth suite that morning. So 
they put something through that as well to help um, deliver the placenta, but I couldn't get it out. And because the cord was attached to the membrane and not attached to the placenta, they couldn't pull the placenta out. And so the blood was just kind of backing up. It had detached from from the, the uterus, but the blood was just um, backing up behind it. And, um, yeah, so every time I would push, basically, I'd just push out the blood and, and not the placenta. So they ended up having to take me to surgery. And, um, yeah, I ended up losing three litres of blood and oh, wow. – passing out from the blood loss before they could put me under to remove it. Um, so, yeah, that was – but, again, in the moment I had that, just said to myself that everything was going to be okay. Mm. I felt fine. Uh, well, I didn't feel fine, but I just knew that it would be okay, even though it was it was quite an emergency. Like the OB literally pushed the bed down to surgery herself because we couldn't wait for a ward nurse. So, mm. Um, yeah, it, I was in surgery for a few hours uh, before I could get back to um, the maternity ward and I ended up having to have a couple of bags of blood the following day and an infusion as well um, from from the loss. But people would probably think that that was um, traumatic for me, but I think it came back to that I felt supported, I felt safe, um, that I was in good hands, I was being look after, looked after. Um, and I think a, a lot of trauma is around, like, how you feel, your emotional state about the situation and what happens, yeah. um, not always the physical things that happen to you. And so I think that's why I've been able to process that a lot better this time. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like the birth was traumatic at all. I feel like it was a very positive birth, even though what happened afterwards happened. I don't, I don't focus, I'm not focusing on that. And it, I don't think it's a situation where I've pushed it under the rug, but, um, yeah, I still just love my birth. So, I, yeah, I don't think of that. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And so after surgery, is there a particular amount of time that you have to stay in hospital for? Or Yeah, so we ended up being in hospital for longer than I thought. Okay. I... Um, obviously my blood levels needed to come back up and um, that sort of thing then unfortunately gosh it sounds like a a really situation now but um, a couple of days after we unfortunately got the call from New Zealand that my father-in-law was going into respite care oh you're joking it just like all kind of happened at once and he ended up having to fly out to New Zealand with my son um, on the Friday and, um, yeah, so we sort of spent the first three weeks just Sky and I. Um, I came home from hospital after a week. And um, it's funny because I was really worried in pregnancy that I wouldn't get that bonding time with her because I'd be, you know, ha- I'd have a toddler as well. Um, but, yeah, I ended up getting that bonding time just one-on-one with her. But, unfortunately, it was just a horrible situation in- that came about to give me that. So, yeah, yeah so, yeah deal with a newborn recovering from blood loss and then obviously grieving for my father-in-law as well so it was a crazy month following her birth but yeah, wow. yeah. did you have a better connection with mm-hmm. yeah time? and yeah. the connection this time with her was definitely a lot quicker um than with my son that's for sure um I think also because having felt that love for a child before I think it's a little bit easier to transfer onto another child um but the connection 
there a lot sooner with um with her and I don't know whether that was because of the birth as well um it's hard to say but definitely yeah yeah so all in all the um I am just yeah so thankful that um I got the birth that I wanted because I don't think I'll be having any more children so yeah yeah So to wrap up today's episode, what would be your key piece of advice for any expectant mothers out there listening? I touched on it earlier and it basically comes back to um, educating yourself, uh, seeking out education both for um, infertility causes and and doctors and things like that and also um, learning what the body does for labor so that you can recognize um, what what you need to do next um, and having having the conversation with with other people about their experiences but also not taking it on as your own either because everyone loves a bad story and everyone talks about a bad birth it's it's rare that you hear a positive birth which is why I love this podcast but um, yeah just um educating yourself and advocating for yourself in both situations yeah amazing advice what an inspiration you are Elle thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your journey with us thank you so much for having me I really hope that um my story can help others like um like it did for me that brings us to the end of today's episode what an incredible journey in all the ways i hope any mamas out there listening that are experiencing infertility can draw some inspiration from Elle's story today a really big take home for me is the impact of shortened cervix as Elle mentioned today this really isn't common knowledge unless you yourself have experienced it or you know someone that has Luckily for Elle, she had the wisdom of her infertility community to fall back on and push for a basically life-saving scan. I mean, that just gives me goosebumps thinking about it. I myself also have women close to me that have experienced devastating outcomes from this, so I really feel it's a topic that deserves some light. But I also don't want to instill any fear or unnecessary concern in you guys, and I'm also not a medical professional. So if you have had any biopsies or surgeries you think could have compromised or caused trauma to your cervix, or if any women in your family have experienced a shortened cervix, please chat with your healthcare provider and share this information with them and also request to have that measurement taken. It is such an easy request to make that can have a profound impact on your outcome. There is also another really great episode where we discuss this topic. It is season one, episode four with my girlfriend Shana, which I will link in the show notes for you all. Another inspiring story for you guys to dive into. I hope you enjoyed it. Please let me know what you think over on the PBA Instagram. And if you love PBA, I would be forever grateful for a subscribe and review on your podcast platform. This helps us to continue this work and reach more women who need it. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you all next week for another episode of Positive Birth Australia. Bye.